223 is where we'll be starting. Most people are legalistic by nature. Now, we don't tend to think of ourselves as legalistic, but we all can be legalistic in one way or another. One of the reasons for this is because pride and self-righteousness are at the heart of legalism. And just a part of the human experience is is pride. We think we're typically we think we're a little bit better than other people. We typically think we have arrived maybe more than what we have. And when we begin to think that way, we begin to to kind of judge others in light of us. Right? One of the signs of, of legalism is judging other people by our own standards of, of what's right and what isn't right. It's kind of like how we determine a good driver on the interstate. Have you ever noticed you're on the interstate and a person flies past you? Right? They're a maniac. And then you're on the interstate and you come upon somebody going slower than you and they're an idiot. But then there's those people who are going the same speed you are and they are the good drivers on the interstate. Right? This is a, a similar way in what we do in light of, of standards and how to live our lives. Those who have, quote unquote, higher standards than us, they're a bit legalistic in how they live. Those who have, quote unquote, lower standards than us, well, they're, they're kind of liberal or, or worldly. But those who have the same standards we have, brother, they are sanctified, devoted followers of Christ. Now, the result of legalism is what become narrow and divisive. We insist everyone live by the standards we have adopted. Now, we would never say, say it this way. What we would do is say, and what we, we would never say it this way, we, what we do, this is a poorly worded sentence, my bad. We would never say it in this way, but what we kind of end up saying is, I'm the standard. None of us would ever say we're the standard of what a faithful disciple of Jesus is. But when I look at someone else and I say they don't have the same standards I have, therefore they're less than me. Or they have higher standards than me, therefore they're less than me. That's what I've done. I've set myself up as the standard of what a faithful disciple of Jesus looks like. Another danger of legalism is it can keep us very busy with religious and moral activities. And yet it causes us to miss out on a genuine relationship with Christ. Right? Because legalism does not produce a thriving relationship with Jesus. Instead, legalism will take an active faith and it will make it dull and lifeless. Legalism destroys or erodes enthusiasm. It destroys joy and it stunts spiritual growth. Legalism in some ways is like the story of a little girl I heard. A little girl went to stay with her grandparents one weekend. And the grandparents believed that since Sunday was the Lord's day, you weren't supposed to do anything. You, you could, it was a day to go to church. It was a day to read the Bible. It was a day to pray. And that was it. You couldn't run and play. You couldn't scream and holler. Uh, you, you couldn't watch TV. You could read the Bible. You could pray. And that was where you could sit in quietness. The little girl was bored. And so she asked if she could walk to the 
the gate in the front yard and back. And they said she could so long as she didn't skip or sing or seem overly excited. And as she walked out there, she got to the edge of the gate. She looked out. There was a, a donkey on the other side of the gate with its long face hung low. And she reached through and she put her hands on its head and said, Poor old fella, you got religion too? I, I think for many people, this is either their idea of Christianity or this is their experience of Christianity. Soured people, narrow and divisive, judging others by themselves, pushing people away. The reality is this is the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees, what we see in God's Word. And while we almost always have a negative view of the Pharisees, the question I want to ask us today is, is it possible we're not as different from them as we think we are? Open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Mark 2, verse 23, uh, page 762 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Mark 2 and 23. And it happened that as he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along, picking the heads of grain, the Pharisees were saying to him, Look! Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and how his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, the time of the consecrated bread, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He entered the synagogue again and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. So they might accuse him. He said to the man with a withered hand, get up and come forward. He said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger. Grieved at the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might put him to death. Title of the message is you might be a Pharisee if. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we come today with a desire to, to learn from your word. Father, we want your word and your spirit to do a work of grace in our lives uh, and help us, free us from legalism, Father. We know it's not going to be a one and done kind of thing. Lord, legalism is so pervasive in all of our hearts. Uh, it is difficult. But Lord, we ask today that your word and spirit would come and work in us and help put the Pharisee to death in all of us. Help us to live in grace. Help us to walk by your word. Let us live by the spirit. Let us do your will. Father, take what we're going to talk about today and open our minds and our hearts to it. Let it sink deep down into our hearts and let it bring forth good fruit in our lives. Courage us and strengthen us. Send us out, Lord, this next week to be lights that would shine brightly for Jesus. 
Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. I don't want to be a hindrance in any way. Guide me today. Have your way in all of our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. One of the bigger issues with the Pharisees and one of the results of legalism is that they'd begun to trust in themselves and in their righteousness instead of God. They weren't righteous because of God. They weren't righteous because of God's work in their lives. They weren't righteous because God was good and God was gracious. They were righteous because they kept the law. And they put so much trust in their keeping of the law that they ended up keeping God out of the equation altogether. The result or the the legalism of the Pharisees was a result of religion without a relationship with God. For our day, to put it in our context, we would might say Pharisees are born when religion is divorced from a relationship with Jesus. Now, this is, I think, an important point. Pharisees are born when religion is divorced from a relationship with Jesus. Because we always have to realize the Pharisees, they were religious in the right religion, right? I mean, they weren't Baalites. They weren't worshiping Molech. They weren't worshiping one of the Greek or the Roman gods. They were worshiping Yahweh, at least in theory. The, the laws that they had were, in most part, laws God himself had given. So they were religious in the right way. They read the right book. And in many ways, they lived in the right ways. But by taking God out of it, they became legalistic, divisive, hate-filled toward other people, judgmental. Any of us can easily become a Pharisee. When we begin to take the rules of God's word and we divorce that from a relationship with Jesus and say, I'm going to live this way and I'm going to do that and I'm going to make sure everybody else does as well. We push towards Phariseeism and toward legalism in our lives. Being active in all sorts of religious activities without a, a thriving relationship with Jesus, it free it it breeds Phariseeical legalism. It is just as possible in our day as it was in theirs. And well, I won't get into that. Never mind. So what I want to do is, as I've studied through this, thought of, of course, Jeff Foxworthy. You've probably noticed by the title, you might be a redneck if. So I want to do it with, you might be a Pharisee if. You might be a Pharisee if you elevate traditions to the level of God's word. You might be a Pharisee if you elevate traditions to the level of God's word. In verse 23 and 24, Jesus and his disciples were passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath day. And his disciples picked heads of grain in order to eat it. This upset the Pharisees. They asked Jesus, why were his disciples not doing what was right? Why were they breaking the law by not keeping the Sabbath. Now, by saying what the disciples were doing was not lawful, they were saying it was a violation of God's law and it was thus a sin. Now, the problem with this is the Pharisees were judging the disciples by their standard and not what was based upon the law. The law said, keep the Sabbath holy. No work supposed to be done on the Sabbath day. Keep it holy, a day devoted to the Lord to honor him. Well, that's that's what it was. 
Well, what happened over time was religious leaders began to say, well, what, what, what's work exactly? One of the things it said was don't go so far you could walk and that all of these things. And so the law had several commands it gave about what was work. And they began to try to put hedges around it. Right. If 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 crossing this right here, stepping here was was a sin, if this was work, then what they wanted to do is they wanted to put a gate back here so people wouldn't get to there and cross over. Now, that's overall, that's a, a good kind of a mindset. They were they had good intentions when they set out to do this, to build these fences around what was actually the law, what was actually a sin. But what they ended up doing was they would build a fence here and then realize maybe that's too close. So they'd build one back here and then they'd build one back here and then they'd build one back here and then they'd build one back here and they began to, to turn the law into something it wasn't meant to be. Right? Jesus said the, the Sabbath was given for man. It was meant to be a blessing. Right? To have a day where you didn't have to work was meant to be a blessing and not a burden. It was meant to be something where you could just say, calm down, focus on God and worship God. But what they had done was they had turned the day itself and all of the rules about the day into a burden. Let me give you an example of some of the fences they put up to show you what I mean about it being a burden. People were forbidden from traveling more than 3,000 feet from their homes on the Sabbath. A Jew could not carry an object weighing more than a dried fig, but an object weighed half could be carried twice. They couldn't eat anything larger than an olive. They couldn't throw an object into the air with one hand and catch it with the other. If the Sabbath came as you were reaching out for some food, you would have to drop the food before you pulled, before you pulled your arm back. Otherwise, you'd be guilty of carrying a burden on the Sabbath. Clothing could not be washed or dried. A fire could not be lit or extinguished. If you failed to light your lamps before the Sabbath, you had to sit in the dark until the next evening. Jews could not take baths on the Sabbath. If they did, some of the water might splash onto the floor, and this would be considered washing it. Chairs or heavy objects could not be moved, because dragging them might make a furrow in the ground, and that could be considered as plowing. A woman could not look into a looking glass, because she might see a, a hair out of place or a gray hair and be tempted to, to fix it. False teeth could not be worn, because they exceeded weight limits. A Jewish tailor could not carry a needle on the Sabbath, lest he be tempted to mend a torn garment. It was against the law to tie or untie a knot or sew two stitches. If a Jew was injured on the Sabbath, it was unlawful to make him better. You could only give him enough treatment to keep him alive. This will come into play in chapter 3. One of my commentaries said the restrictions had become dangerous even, because on two occasions the Jews were defeated by their enemies and thousands of Jews died because they refused to defend themselves on the Sabbath. Now, this was just a small sampling of the man-made rules they had made about the Sabbath. And what they had done was they had elevated their traditions to the level of God's word. And they made violating one of their traditions just as bad or just as much a sin as violating God's law. And this is what Phariseeism does. It takes a man-made tradition or a man-made rule, which probably came about with a good intention. And it turns it into a law unto itself. It elevates it to the place of God's word. And it says that by violating this tradition, you have sinned 
against God just as surely as if you did what God said thou shalt not do. Now, tradition in and of itself is not wrong. Traditions are not, neither good nor bad. Right? Traditions just are. Traditions are, are really no different than a preference. We like doing it this way, so we do it this way. We've done it this way for a while. We like doing it this way, so we keep doing it this way. Nothing wrong with that. We all have traditions. We all have preferences. The problem with traditions and with preferences is when we elevate them to the point that they are equal with God's word to such an extent that if another person, another disciple of Jesus, another person does not keep our tradition, does not keep our preferences, we look down upon them as less than. We think they are sinning because they're not keeping our traditions or they don't hold to our preferences. We say they're not as devoted to Jesus as we are because they don't do these things that we do. This is what Pharisees do. Pharisees elevate their traditions and preferences to the level of God's word. And then they condemn anyone who doesn't follow these traditions and preferences. And we don't have time to get into all the ways this could be played out in our lives. But if if you or I, if we determine sin or not sin, worldly or not worldly, right or wrong, based upon our traditions and our preference and not God's word. We might just be Pharisees. So you might be a Pharisee if you elevate traditions to the level of God's word. You might be a Pharisee if you look for reasons to condemn others. Look at verse 3. He entered the synagogue again and the man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. So the guy in the synagogue has a withered hand. Now from what I can gather in my study... Uh, the way this is worded in the Greek, it means his hand had become crippled, deformed, or diseased beyond use. The idea was he wasn't born this way. Something bad had happened to his hand. Um, and so he has been brought, or he has entered the synagogue at the time Jesus is there. Now the way I read the chapter, my understanding of it, I, I don't believe this was a chance encounter. I believe one of two things has happened here. Either the guy with the withered hand has heard Jesus is in the synagogue. He's in town. He goes to synagogues. He's a healer. And so he went to have an intentional encounter with Jesus. I think that's a, a distinct possibility. But when we realize that the Pharisees were there to accuse Jesus, it's also a distinct possibility that they knew Jesus was in town. And they knew he went to the, he went to the synagogues on the Sabbath. And they went out to the guy and said, hey, gosh, it's terrible about your hand. You know, Jesus is in town and he's been known to heal people. He typically goes to the synagogues. I bet if you came, he might be able to help you. Come on, go with us. Overall, it doesn't really matter which way it happened. What, hap what matters is what we see in verse 2. They're watching Jesus closely to see if he would heal so they might accuse him. Now remember, well, the way they understood work on the Sabbath was they could do just enough to keep them alive but not to actually help them. Now, this guy's injury wasn't life-threatening at the moment. What had happened, had happened in the past. It had healed that way, and it was withered up. So Jesus didn't have to do anything to help save his life. So this was their tradition. This was the way they saw it. And they're watching Jesus put the guy in front of Jesus, so when he walks in, he sees him. 
And they're going to see what he does so they can accuse him. Now, keep in mind that, that last phrase, so they might accuse him. This, this is significant. Right? They aren't watching Jesus to decide if he's a good guy or not. They're watching him so they might accuse him. They're not watching Jesus to see if he's a prophet. They're watching him to accuse him. They aren't watching Jesus to see if he is the long-awaited Messiah. They are watching him so they might accuse him. You get what they're doing? They've already made up their mind about Jesus. He is not good and he must be taken out. So they're watching him how they might accuse him. Now, the way this is what Pharisees do. They look. They make a determination about people. And then they look for ways to affirm what they've already decided is right. So in this case. They bring the guy in. Jesus is there. What if Jesus doesn't heal? Well, they're still going to accuse him. You know what they're going to say? Gosh, fellow, you you came to church. Jesus was right there and he does amazing things. Can you believe he told you to come back tomorrow? That, That seems awful callous to me. Maybe he's not the man of the people we've been told he was. Or if he does heal, they're going to do what we see later in the chapter, right? They were going to accuse him. There was nothing Jesus could do at this moment that would not result in them to accuse him. This is what Pharisees do. One of the key mindsets of a a Pharisee is to make a decision about someone and then watch them so that you can find ways to say, Aha, I knew they were wrong. Right. And, and to do this, a Pharisee will take whatever they need in the worst possible way to prove something was wrong. Let's say there are five, five ways to take something someone says. Four are good. One is bad. The Pharisee always latches on to the bad. One. Let me give you an example. A friend of mine in Texas, which I'm sure that's the issue. A friend of mine in Texas had a no turnaround zone sign in his church parking lot. So one day, a guy was driving through the town, pulled up in the parking lot to make a call. And as he was on the phone with somebody else, he saw the no turnaround sign. He got off the phone and he called the church. My friend was not there, but the answering machine picked up and he left a message. This is verbatim the message he left. A church like yours doesn't need the signage on the parking lot saying no turnaround zone sign or no turnaround zone because that's exactly what we want people to do is turn their life around and give their lives to Christ. So it definitely should be a turnaround zone. If it's your church, it's it's your church. But I would strongly suggest taking the sign down. You may see your worship attendance go up. You may see salvation go up. God can definitely work. In a turnaround zone. Now, how determined do you have to be to find fault with someone to see a sign in a parking lot that says no turnaround zone and make a spiritual application that says what the pastor was saying is people can't be saved here. People can't have their lives turned around here. How determined do you have to be that this church, these people are wrong to come to that conclusion? Well, there's a reason he did it. It's because the fellow was a Pharisee. 
He had the same mindset of the people we see in verses 1 and 2. He just needed a reason to accuse. And if we're Pharisees, here's kind of what happens. First, we'll make an assumption about the character, the nature, the devotion, the life, whatever, of a person. And the assumptions are always negative. They're fake. It's just something wrong with them. I don't think they're trustworthy. I wouldn't be surprised if if he's cheating on his wife or she's cheating on her husband. Stuff like that. Then the Pharisee begins to watch carefully. Not to see if they're a good person, but to find a reason to accuse them. To find something that supports the assumption they have just made. Now, she smiled when she looked at you, but as soon as she turned away, you turned away, she stopped. She was only smiling because you were looking. Fake. I knew it. Do you see the way he kept his hand in his pocket? Man, that's weird, right? Who, who does that? Well, I heard her telling something that I could almost guarantee you was told to her in confidence. You just can't trust a person like that. Have you seen the way he looks around the room? It's just almost like he's looking for a woman to ogle. Do you see the way she was talking to that guy? It's, it's almost like she was trying to work up something without her husband seeing. Now, we might laugh at these examples. But we know examples like this that have happened. We know people who make assumptions like this and then begin to interpret everything the person they've made the assumption about in the worst possible way so that it supports the assumption they made. This is the mind of a Pharisee. This is what they are doing in verses 1 and 2. So if we make assumptions about the character, the nature, the devotion, the life, or whatever of a person, and then we watch them carefully so we can find ways that prove our assumption, we might just be a Pharisee. You, you may be a Pharisee if your traditions are more important than people. Now, the reality is the Pharisees don't care about this guy at all. They don't care about his hand. They don't care about the suffering he's experienced. None of that matters to them. Now, again, keep in mind the wording makes it seem that this happened to him later in life. So instead of him being born this way and have lived his life crippled with a withered hand, something had happened. Several early commentaries uh, said he was a stonemason who had a stone fall on his hand and crushed it and crippled it. Now, whether this is true or not is not the point, but it, it just indicates that this was what he had was a serious problem. To be crippled in this day was rough. If he had had a job before he had whatever happened to his hand happened, he had lost his job since. This means he had no way to provide for his family. Right? There was There was no such thing as... Disability. There were no savings accounts. Unless someone was exceedingly wealthy, they lived on a day-by-day basis. They worked a day, they were given a day's wage, they bought a day's food and a day's stuff, and then they kept it. And then they worked a day, and they were given a day's wage, and then they bought a day's food. That was the way they lived their life. So missing even one wage, one day's work and one wage could send a family into a turmoil. Being unable to work ever again, definitely would send a family into a turmoil. 
the loss of a job, the lack of any sort of security or savings account or anything like that brought almost instant destitution. And the only way that he could be taken care of, that he could provide for his family in any way at all, was to beg. Now, can you imagine being the difficulty of being in this position? Caring for the poor was always a part of what God intended his people to do. But rather than caring for this man, rather than trying to take care of him and help him as God had said, they care more about being able to prove Jesus was a bad guy than about being able to help this poor man. His plight, his suffering does not matter so long as they get to prove Jesus is the bad guy they have already determined he is. So this is their mindset. This is what they're doing. But notice what Jesus does. He said to the man with a withered hand, get up and come forward. Now, this is significant. He has them come stand right in the front where everybody else is. Everybody can see. Right? It would be like him saying, Joe, come up here. Stand right here. Right in the middle of the room. Right in the floor. Everybody's going to see. He's not doing anything in secret. He's not hiding from anything they're doing. He wants them to see what it is he is about to do. And then he talks to them before he does anything. He says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm? To save a life or to kill it? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, shouldn't we help when we have the power to help? Now, Jesus clearly seems to think this guy's needs are more important than their man-made traditions and preferences. So how do they respond? They kept silent. And I, I don't think their silence is shame. I don't think they're ashamed of what they're doing. I don't think they're lowering their eyes in guilt. I think they're staring at Jesus in defiance. I say this based upon Jesus' response. Looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. The New Living Translation says Jesus was angry and deeply saddened. This is Jesus' attitude toward the Pharisaic mindset that cares more for traditions than for people. The word for the hardness of their hearts, it pictures something that is calloused over. Their hearts were calloused toward this guy. They were hardened toward this guy. They weren't just hard towards people in need. It wasn't that. It was specifically this. Their hearts were so hard that they could not imagine how his need, his legitimate physical need was more important than their tradition. Could not fathom how his legitimate need was more important than their preference. And they would rather him and his family starve to do anything than to go against their tradition. Now, Luke tells a story similar to this, but he clarifies. Synagogue leader, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done. Come during them and get healed, not on the Sabbath. The ruler's indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. That's the issue here. Again, though, I mean, can you fathom the callous nature of that statement? 
Jesus healed a guy. I mean, and when Jesus healed people, it was typically significant things. And all they could think of was, he broke our traditions. How dare he? Suffer another day. Suffer until a better time. Suffer until it fits within our traditions. And then come and be healed. Our hearts are hard, calloused. Jesus, by healing them, had, by healing this guy, had broken their age-old traditions. And they would much rather this guy suffer than have their age-old traditions broken. They cared more for their traditions than they did for the man or his suffering. It is important for us to see Jesus' attitude towards this. He's angry. He's grieved. But then notice what he did in verse 5. Or I'm sorry, yeah, verse 5. Still going on in verse 5. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus heals the guy anyway. Jesus knows how deeply they hold their traditions. Jesus knows how they're going to respond in verse 6. Jesus knows the anger this is going to cause within them. Jesus knows how much this will offend them, how much this will bother them. And Jesus does not care. As far as Jesus is concerned, people trump traditions. Suffering trumps preferences. It's what he's trying to get them to realize But the question in verse 4. And since people matter more than tradition, and since people matter more than preferences, he heals the guy in front of them. Pharisees care more about their traditions than they do about people. The Pharisees in our text cared more about their Sabbath traditions than they did about the suffering of the man with the withered hand. The main way we see this sort of Phariseeum in our day is when we care more about the traditions than about the fact people around us are going to die and go to hell. Now, of course, we wouldn't say it that way just as they wouldn't have said it as clearly as what I have. But that's how it's lived out. When we're Pharisees, we we live in the good old days and we lament the loss of the old traditions if they ever get wavered on or shifted in some ways. When something new is presented, Pharisee will say, well, we've never done it that way before and I don't think we should ever do it that way again. We tend toward Phariseeism when we talk about what our parents did, how they raised us, what it was like when we were growing up in church. We tend toward Phariseeism when we talk more about the past And we do the present or the future. But but what if? What if the way things were done in the past, while right then, actually hinders us from reaching people in the present or the future? What if what our parents or grandparents did to reach us actually hindered us from reaching our kids and our grandkids? What if the world has changed so dramatically That what we did in the past doesn't work in the present and won't work in the future. What are we willing to do if that's the case? Do we care more about the suffering of the lost? Or do we care more about the age-old traditions that were passed down to us? 
These are the questions we have to answer. If our traditions are more important than people, we might be a Pharisee. If we aren't willing to let go of the past to better reach people in the present or the future, we might be Pharisees. And then finally, you might be a Pharisee if you plot to destroy those who disagree with you. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might put him to death. The Pharisees left the meeting determined to do whatever it took to destroy Jesus. Even yoking up with the Herodians, who we'll see later, were not good people. Normally, the Pharisees and the Herodians had nothing to do with each other, but neither liked Jesus, and so that was the one thing they could agree about. They could work together, yoke up together, in an effort to put Jesus out of their misery. From this point on, all of their interactions with Jesus are going to be hostile. Everything they do from this point on is going to be an attempt to discredit Him and destroy Him. And we know the story we celebrated last week. The story ended, or so they thought, with Jesus being crucified. They thought they had won. They, of course, did not. But that's what they did. What they did in plotting and scheming to convince Pontius or to convince Pilate to crucify Jesus, it began here. It began because Jesus didn't keep their traditions. Jesus thought people mattered more than their preferences. Jesus put people over ahead of the age-old traditions passed down from their fathers. He wouldn't do what they wanted him to do. He did what he knew was right. They would have none of it. And so they had him crucified. It's ironic that they plotted to have Jesus murdered on the Sabbath. A day meant to be devoted to the Lord. A day meant to be holy unto God. A day that's the cause of their anger and frustration. And on that day, they began to plot a murder, which is actually a sin and is actually a violation of God's law and not merely a tradition. Now, Pharisees in our day don't typically take it this far to guilt to kill people. But it doesn't mean they don't still try to destroy those with whom they disagree. Rather than trying to destroy them through murder, they seek to destroy them through gossip or innuendo or lies or stuff like that. Kind of what we see with the the idea of cancel culture. Very much a mindset, the Pharisees. You won't do what I think you ought to do. You don't believe what I think you ought to believe. So I'm going to do everything I can to ensure you're destroyed in one way or another. Pharisees don't have the ability to agree to disagree in an agreeable way about anything. Because again, a Pharisee has set themselves up as the standard. Therefore, if you disagree with me about anything, it's not we read the Bible differently. It's not we have different preferences or traditions. It's I'm right and you're wrong. I'm sanctified. You're worldly. I'm holy. You're unholy. And thus the Pharisee moves from there with a righteous conviction That what they're doing to try to destroy them is the right thing to do. 
They are convinced that what they're doing is right because the person is so wrong that the ends justify the means. Now, again, it doesn't have to be physical. In fact, often in our day, it's typically not, at least in America. It can be emotional. Have you ever known somebody to have a disagreement with someone and maybe in church and then set out to, to do them emotional harm, the things they do and say and how they act around them? That's a Pharisee. It could be spiritual harm. But have you ever known someone to disagree with someone, dislike them and begin to do what they can to, to push them out of the church? Often even turn them sour against the church in general. That's, that's a Pharisee. It could be relational. Have you ever known someone who had a disagreement with someone and begin to talk to their friends and the people in their life and try to convince them to dislike them and to turn away from them? That's a Pharisee. It could be vocational. I don't agree with what you've done. So I'm going to tell your boss and hope that you get fired over it. Hinder your job in one way or another. That's a Pharisee. Anytime someone disagrees with someone and then begins to set out to harm them in, in any way, in this like this, it is the mind and the heart and the attitude of a Pharisee. If your disagreements with people, if my disagreements with people lead us to looking for ways to destroy them or to harm them, we might be Pharisees. So the question is, do we see the element of Pharisee in us? Do you see it in your life? Do I see it in mine? Here's the reality. I do see it in mine. I have long struggled against being a Pharisee. When I first came out here, I promise you I knew everything. I was right about anything and everyone who disagreed with me, whew, mercy. I was, I was not a good person in my heart for the way I was a Pharisee. That, that is a true statement. And I have, the Lord has done much work in my heart and I have worked very hard to, to kill the Pharisee within me. But here's what I'll, I'll confess. That fellow is still there. And he can rise up at a moment's notice over any number of things, big or small. And he is a horrible, horrible individual. So for me, I see that in me. The question for me is, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to be content to be a Pharisee? Or am I going to try to be a disciple of Jesus? Because the reality is I can't be both. I mean, I can't give in to my Phariseeism and live in it and go that route and then be a disciple of Jesus at the same time. The Pharisees put Jesus to death. They didn't follow him. So that's the question for you as well. Do you see the elements of a Pharisee in you? And if you do, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to be content to be like the people who crucified Jesus? Or are you going to go to Jesus, cling to Him, and ask for help to put to death that monster within you? We're going to have a time of response. And I do want you to come forward if you need to and pray. Just get to stand now. And, and if, you're, if you see the Pharisee within you, and if you're going to try to put it to death, here's two ways to pray. Whether you come forward, whether you pray there. One, pray truly to put it to death. That through the power of the Spirit, the Pharisee within you will be destroyed. 
But secondly, pray to grow in a thriving love-based relationship with Jesus. Pharisee, the Pharisee within us dies in the light of Jesus' presence. The Pharisee within us dies as our love for Jesus grows. So pray those ways if you need to put the Pharisee down. The altars are open.